Hello, Jazz Session listeners. I am Jason Crane, host of the Jazz Session, announcing the 100 by 300 campaign. That's right, my goal is to get 100 members by the 300th show to keep the Jazz Session going, and you can join very easily. Just visit thejazzsession.com and click on either the join link at the top of the page or the one on the side of the page. There are monthly levels starting at 10 bucks a month. There are yearly levels starting at $110 a year. Please join the people who have already become members and help keep the Jazz Session going. The Jazz Session receives no external funding from any source uh, up to and including All About Jazz, and that means for me to keep doing it, I need you. Thousands and thousands of you listen to every show, and if you could find the uh, the cost of maybe two cups of coffee uh, a month in your couch cushions, you can help keep the show going for years to come. That is the 100 by 300, 100 members by the 300th show. Join now at thejazzsession.com. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, and you can also subscribe in iTunes or using uh, any RSS reader of your choice, and there are links to do both those things at thejazzsession.com. Uh, I never take the shows down, as I always say that thing about every episode is available, but they're always there. Uh, so if you just go to thejazzsession.com, along the left side of the page is a, a list, last name first, of every artist who's ever been on the show, and uh, you can listen to those interviews anytime you want. They're there for uh, available for download and everything else. Please do become a member. We're up to, I think, 15 members so far, and uh, that's fantastic. Looking to get to 100 by the 300th show, and... I'm not exactly sure what number this is as I'm recording this introduction, but it's about 2.30 or somewhere there, so we've got about 70 episodes left. Um, But please do become a member uh, at whatever level you can afford. There's both monthly and yearly memberships, and I'm still looking for somebody to uh, become a member at either the highest monthly uh, or yearly membership. And if you do that, by the way, you will get mentioned on every single show. So I'm just sticking that out there. If uh, if you or your record label, for example, um, would like to be mentioned on every show, uh, people who contribute at those two levels, the, the highest monthly level or the highest yearly level, will be mentioned on every show. I have long been a fan of Jane Ira Bloom. Uh, She's just a fantastic soprano saxophone player and uh, a really interesting thinker about the music and about how the music works in physical space. Um, I really, really like her playing. I have had the chance to see her live. And for some reason, I've never had her on this show, Uh, uh, an oversight of mine which has finally been rectified. She's got a great new record called Wing Walker. features uh, many of the the folks that she's been playing with for years now, a really fine band, and begins with a tune called Her Exacting Light.
My guest is composer and saxophonist Jane Ira Bloom. She has uh, a great new record on Outline Records called Wing Walker, and it's my pleasure to have Jane on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jason. Uh, I can't can't believe that uh, in the three years of this show you haven't been on before because I'm a huge fan of your music and your playing, and uh, it, it's such a joy for me to to have you here. And I, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit, uh, and this probably isn't where, where folks normally start, but you have an amazing uh, facility for titling songs. And I wanted to ask a little bit, uh, some of these titles have kind of programmatic feels to them, but I'm not sure that they're intended to be read that way. I just wanted to ask a little bit about about that. Well, you know, I, I kind of always looked at titles like the way a poet does, you know. Something that's provocative. <laughs> Either it, it, it uh, tickles my imagination, I think it might tickle somebody else's, you know. Um, I wouldn't say exactly they're programmatic, but, uh, you know, I've always been a visual thinker. I don't know why or how or what, but somehow that always seems to come out in the titles. Yeah, and there are, I mean, there are images, I just to, to pick one that always leaps out at me every time I flip this record over, you know, like the Freud's convertible image. <laughs> <laughs> You'd love to think he had one, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it, it just makes me laugh every time I think about it. Well, that's really great. Mm. The um, the band on here is, is fantastic. Will you mention the people who are on this record with you? Oh, sure. The, these are longtime bandmates. Uh, I've been working and playing with drummer Bobby Previtt for so many years, I, don't, I can't even count them. Uh, bassist Mark Helias, my goodness, I have known Mark since uh, the 1970s, uh, but we've started playing actively together in the last six, six or so years. And uh, Don Clement, uh, pianist and, and uh, the keyboardist who's playing the piano and, and the Fender Rhodes. I met Don in Seattle, I guess it was about seven years ago. And after I played, I was there visiting the Cornish College, uh, doing a clinic out there, and I met her, and uh, once we played, that was it. I've been playing with her ever since. And, and why is that? What, is it, what was it about her playing? Uh, how, do you, how do you know when someone is a good fit for you? I mean, I guess you can feel it or something, but how did you know in that case? Well, um, you know, you get to know your own music's demands as the years go by. One of them is... is uh, Sight reading my music is kind of technically demanding, <laughs> for one thing. And on, on the one hand, there's a, that technical aspect to it, and on, on the other, there's a a very uh, in, in, intuitive kind of vocal quality about it that the musicians bring to it. And uh, Dawn's also a singer. <laughs> she plays the hell out of the piano, but she also sings, and I've always felt that her connection to voice is something um, that I find you know, very, very special. Thank you. 
your own playing, uh, whenever you play an instrument, I mean, there's a, obviously a physical component to it, and with a wind instrument, uh, you know, that much more so because it involves the breath, but in your own playing, and I've both heard you on record but also seen you perform, you have brought that physicality uh, to an even more heightened state when you play. Movement is such a big part of what you do. And uh, Can you talk a little bit about how has that all has that been something that's been part of your playing since the earliest days? Is that something you've developed over time? Yeah, if you asked anybody who used to watch me play, I came you know came up playing in New Haven, Connecticut, <laughs> and if you asked anybody then, uh, they would probably tell you they remember me, you know, moving around a lot with a big head of hair that <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could barely see my face. Uh, as the years, I've, I've always it's always just been something that's intuitive. And then as the years went by, um, I started working with modern dancers and uh, choreographers who helped me sort of get interested in, in trying to find out what this was that I was doing. And as time went on, I, I became very interested in how sound could change when it moves. So I, I took this technique of, the, of mine, which is kind of moving the bell of the horn to make these Doppler-like effects, and I started using them as, as part of sound vocabulary in my music. And and involving other instruments too, like when I would orchestrate for, uh, you know, even as large as symphonic orchestra, uh, involving people in in some elements of this movement aspect that's, that's part of my playing. Uh, so when you make use of that movement, and particularly on that larger scale you were talking about, is it is it notated or at least directed somewhere on the page? You know, face this way, turn in this direction, that kind of. Thing? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's limited, but uh, basically turning 180 degrees or 30, 360 degrees in left, right at uh, different speeds and stuff. And uh, with careful uh, rehearsal, it can be done. <laughs> you don't want to do this at home without <laughs> practice. <laughs> and how did you, uh, did you videotape yourself doing this? Or how did you get a chance to see, well, this is what the, this is the effect I'm having because you're in the center of the sound um, with your saxophone? I suppose it, it, it was an end result of uh, swinging the, the, the instrument past microphones, the recorded version of it. Uh, creating this panning-like effect. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's how I first sort of got onto it. <laughs> uh, so on this new album, uh, Wingwalker, how much of what we're hearing is uh, through-composed or composed, for lack of a better word, and how much is kind of happening spontaneously in the studio? One of the things I like about the record is that it's often difficult to tell. Well, you know, that that really makes me feel good, because that's what I really hope to achieve with, with the bit that I do write and, and how we improvise. Um, there's, I don't know, if you had to put percents on it, I, uh, very little is written. There is so much that is spontaneous that you're listening to that seems as if it was uh, predetermined, but it really wasn't. Uh, it's just the result of some musicians who've played together a really long time, uh, who given, you know, given even a small amount of musical information can take it really far. And I think that's something uh, Miles Davis knew very well. Uh, not to over-influence over <laughs> uh, improvisers with too much information.
And so speaking uh, kind of practically for a moment, how do you see your role when you're in the studio, when it's recording time? Are you are you kind of shaping and guiding where the music goes at any given moment? Are you giving emotive directions? I, I feel like this piece should be kind of fill in the blank or whatever. What? How do you function inside the studio? Well, that's a good question, you know, um, especially when you work with people who you've worked, worked with a long time. Uh, there's not an awful lot of that uh, that goes on actually in the studio. Um, maybe some more of that goes on when you rehearse. Uh, but my feeling about being in the studio is to try to be as far away from the judgmental part of my mind as I can be to let things flow and surprise me and also, you know, to help that quality happen for the other musicians too. That's what spontaneity is really about. Um, And, you know, in a studio, it's a hard thing to do. Uh, You can imagine, you know, with the earphones on and the headphone mixes and uh, you're in a funny environment and you're hearing the, the instruments in a different way than you're used to. There's all kinds of mental adjustments that are going on. But anything you can do to, to keep things surprising is always a good thing, I think, in the studio. In fact, you've uh, you've given me a perfect segue. I, I was reading um, an article that you wrote at All About Jazz called Improvisation Like the Weather, which I highly recommend. It's a really uh, really beautiful essay about, about improvising. But one of the things you say in it is, I spend my time rehearsing how to be spontaneous. Rehearsing how to be spontaneous sounds counterintuitive, but when practicing, I exercise music muscles and memory so to be ready for any unpredictable moment. Is there anything else you can, you can say about that? Expand on that a little bit? Well, if you ask any artist, you know, how they do what they do. The, uh, the magic is when we perform, but if I were to describe to you what my performance, you know, my rehearsal techniques are, or, you know, all the laborious time that it takes to, to be able to be that spontaneous um, without any technical worries about your instrument or musically where things are going... That's a whole other thing. That's the discipline of what musicians do. And, uh, you know, you know I, I do that when I'm practicing. You know. So it's kind of perfecting the craft so that it's not in the way when it comes time to, there you to go. improvise? Is that the idea? Yeah, if the, if the instrument can disappear when we're playing, then that's a good thing. Yeah, oh, that's great. Uh, one other thing you said in that uh, same essay was that some solos can only be played when there's great silence, which I thought was a very lovely idea. Can you talk more about that? Well, you know, the older I've gotten, Jason, <laughs> it's it's been interesting. I, it's almost like I've been tearing the notes away. Uh, I'm sure this happens to many musicians, but I'm playing less and less. <laughs> um, maybe it's because you've you've played a whole lot of notes already, and you're finding which ones you you want to play. But I'm finding uh, a whole lot to be found in less is more, and uh, it just seems to be a natural progression for me. Think, thinking uh, in slower movements of melody, and uh, maybe uh, trying only to play closer to what I can sing. Yeah, when I read your thoughts uh, about improvisation and and about playing uh, music in general, uh, they kind of remind me of writings I've read about uh, meditation and about the act of being very present. And I wonder if you see any analogy there between those concepts. 
Oh, you bet. Uh, probably the most meditative <laughs> I ever get in my entire life is when I'm improvising. You know, that's a it's a great state of of relaxation. Uh, even even when you're at at ripping tempos, there's just something kind of for me euphoric about it. You know. Can you talk a little bit? Um, I, I want to mostly stay focused on the on the present, but I'm interested in in how you became attracted to the soprano saxophone and and chose to focus on that. Well, you know, I have to really chalk it up to the the guy who I studied saxophone with. I was I was very young; I was a teenager at the time, and I studied with this master musician, a woodwind uh, master by the name of Joe Viola. Sadly, Joe passed away quite a while ago, but. Uh, he had a, this enormous passion for the soprano, and uh, when I'd come in for my lessons, he'd be playing it. And when I heard his sound on that instrument, I said, "That's what I want to do." <laughs> and and the rest is history. <laughs> do you feel like? Um, I mean, of course, choosing your instrument has an impact on your career, but has it uh, has it either expanded or limited the possibilities that you've had over the years? Have there been times when it's been? either a help or a hindrance to be a soprano saxophone? Oh, probably a little of both. Um, sure, I'm not a doubler. I never played the clarinets, or uh, even shortly after college, I, I found I wasn't even playing the alto as much as I used to. Um, so in that sense, yeah, you get very you get specialized. <laughs> uh, but I, cu- I couldn't deny the fact that it was my voice and what I felt the most comfortable playing. Uh, in terms of... Uh, how it you know how it's been helpful is is I suppose because uh, my attention has been focused so much on on the instrument and and how to finesse it uh, without having to think about doubling on other other woodwinds. It's given a certain kind of con- you know concentration and and uh, attention to a lot of the details of the soprano that. Uh, you know, every saxophone player's got to work out. You know, and I think particularly for for that instrument, it, I think it's key. I, I don't think you can always tell when someone's main instrument is not the soprano saxophone, but I think you often can tell when it's just something they've added to their arsenal. I think it's a particularly tricky beast. And uh, well, it is, and it's it's the problem is it's got a, you know it's a smaller instrument and the holes are smaller and everything's closer together and there's basically a smaller window of accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> when you play it. So uh, the same movement that you would make in your embouchure on a tenor uh, might not make the same drastic change in sound that it would on a soprano. That's that's the big difference. <laughs> I like that smaller window of accuracy. I've never heard it described quite that yeah, way. But, that's uh, <laughs> pretty much what it is. I, I think most, most players would describe it that way. That's great. <laughs> um, you've always had a, a focus on um, either... Large. I don't know. If I, the word "free" has a lot of baggage with it, but uh, largely improvised settings or your own compositions uh, is that is expressing your music not just through performance but um, through your compositions. Is that something that's been important to you from from the beginning? Yeah, from square one. Even from the time I started playing music, I was inventing things. <laughs> but you know, the interesting thing is is uh, there's there's always been a parallel path in my music uh, that's been just just as deep, which is that I, I have also been deeply in love with the American songbook and playing ballads for me um, is just as important. <laughs> uh, so those two, you know, really what seem like divergent streams of thought are really all one thing for me. 
What is it that attracts you to those kind of classic ballads? In fact, uh, this record closes with I Could Have Danced All Night. Well, when you listen to melodic line deeply and you start to get interested in how one note following another really makes a difference, which one and where it goes, um, whether you're doing that in the, in, the, in the context of a beautiful slow ballad written by Richard Rogers or... Uh, whether you're doing it in your own music, there's 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 something that those things can share. <laughs> How melodies can move you. Yeah, I think, um, for example, the version of "I Could Have Danced All Night" that closes this record is only three minutes long, and that, in some ways, that's a statement in and of itself that um, that it doesn't require it doesn't require more than exists inside no, the, the melody. It says it all. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. In a way. Uh, one thing I uh, I want to ask you about, uh, mostly because of a funny coincidental self-interest, is earlier this year I published a book of poems called Unexpected Sunlight, and you have a project called Unexpected Light, which is a, a music and light installation piece. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask about that, how, how it came about, and it's always hard to describe things like this, but if you can tell us a little bit about what it was like. Well, I, I had an idea, <laughs> and I was very fortunate uh, to have an opportunity to have a grant that was enabled me to actualize this, but I tried to imagine what would happen if a jazz uh, ensemble, if a quartet, were improvising simultaneously with uh, lighting effects designed by, improvised by a lighting designer. As you know, you see all kinds of beautiful lighting design when you go to the theater or dance, 
and they're very knowledgeable people who are inventing those lighting, you know, visual lighting ideas. And so I, I had a, a long, long friendship with a very uh, well-known uh, lighting designer by the name of Jim Ingalls. Uh, this is a guy who goes all over the world lighting opera and theater and everything. And uh, he had some free time. And basically, we went into the Sedgwick Cultural Center in uh, Philadelphia, and he brought in a whole installation of lights into this space. And I had written a, a suite of music that we rehearsed a little bit and then largely improvised in performance together uh, between, with the band and him at the light board. <laughs> so it was a, a visually visually improvised as well as musically improvised experience. And did you find that the changing visual environment uh, impacted what you were playing in the moment? Yeah. You know, it it was hard. It was more exciting, I think, for the audience because we found that we couldn't see as well as they could everything that was going on. But there was no uh, doubt that you could feel the difference in the vibration and and the color that was around you. Um, It was as if it was as if the lighting designer were, were the fifth member of a, of a quintet, you know, in a way. Speaking of, uh, of grants and fellowships, uh, there's, if I'm not mistaken, a Guggenheim Fellowship uh, partly behind Wingwalker, is that right? Well, it, it gave me time. <laughs> yeah. I got a, a wonderful opportunity to, to take time off. Uh, I'm, I'm a full-time faculty at the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music in New York City. And so I've been spending a lot of time, you know, in an educational setting. And uh, this Guggenheim Fellowship gave me, you know, a good half a year to just be with my own uh, musical thoughts again. And and so some of this music was generated then. That seems like a very uh, precious commodity when you make your living both teaching and being on the road playing. Well, just being being a human being in 2011, <laughs> it's it's hard to find sound and silence and the time for it. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, speaking of performances, um, keeping in mind that this will air on the 13th, are there some upcoming gigs that you'd like to tell folks about? Really, oh, any, yeah, anywhere I'd love to. Uh, if anybody's in the New York area, um, we're going to perform at um, the court, the quartet from the album is going to perform at the Cornelia Street Cafe, uh, which is on Cornelia Street in, in the West Village in Manhattan. Uh, and we'll be playing there on Sunday, January 23rd at 8.30 p.m., it's it's a great space. Come on down, um, and you, you know it's it's a whole lot more fun to hear the stuff live. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's great. Yeah, please come. Uh, uh, another date I have coming up in February is as a guest artist with a, a very unique uh, band called Mlumbo. I'm not sure if you're familiar with their music. I'm not at all. Uh, you got to you got to go on the net and, and <laughs> Google these guys. Can you spell well, that for us? Jim? Yeah, M apostrophe L U M B O. It's kind of a multimedia music, electronica, music, jazz, collage band. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've I've been guest artisting with them for several years because I've been so interested in their music. And we're playing at the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn uh, on Saturday, February nineteenth uh, at ten p.m. And uh, this is a, a fascinating band. You got to hear the music uh, that they're into. It's it's unlike anything I've ever heard. And and how did you uh, hook up with them? How was that initial contact made? 
one of my former students, uh, several of my former students actually are playing in the band, but a uh, trumpet player by the name of Cecil Young uh, was a former student of mine at the New School. And uh, I was following, you know, his, his career. Uh, he, he left school quite a long time ago. Uh, but he is a, a, a seminal member of this, this band, and so that's how I got introduced uh, to the music. On this CD, in addition to the part that you can stick in your CD player, there's also an MP3 file on here of the record in a five-minute and change version. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's a fascinating idea. Well, uh, last few CDs, uh, I've been interested in, in also putting MP3s on the CDs that demonstrate a little bit more how the band plays the music in concert. In other words, not with discrete stops and starts in between the tunes. So, um, kind of a, you know, free associative kind of flow to the music in, in about, you know, 40 or 50 minutes. And so I figured I, I wanted to do something different with this one. So instead of thinking of how people could experience the music in real time, I, I thought it might be interesting how people might experience the music in a completely altered sense of time, which is condensed, uh, where things f- uh, flow, make, you know, merge and flow in ways that are uh, completely unexpected. And so that's what that five minutes is. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, it was really fun to listen to. My, uh, my guest is the saxophonist and composer Jane Ira Bloom. She has a new CD on Outline called Wing Walker, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a great album, and I highly recommend everything she did before that, too, because uh, I really, really enjoyed listening to your playing. And it's been great to talk to you. Uh, sorry it's taking me so long, but uh, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for coming on great the show. Great talking with you, Jason.
That's music from saxophonist Jane Ira Bloom and her new album Wingwalker on Outline Records. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is at thejazzsession.com for free anytime you want it. You can stream it right at the site. You can download it. Uh, it's under a Creative Commons license, and uh, information about that is at the bottom of the jazzsession.com page. Thanks to the Respect Sextet. They have a new record called Farcical Built for Six and a lot of great records before that one. You can find them all at respectsextet.com. Also, uh, they were mentioned as one of the things to see at uh, Winter Jazz Fest by the Village Voice, which is very cool. So congratulations to the guys for that. They uh, certainly deserve whatever accolades they get. My thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. Thanks so much for listening, and now I urge you to get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. <laughs>